Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, you know, an increase in property taxes for longtime homeowners in these neighborhoods that are changing, well, it can cause hardships. So here in Atlanta, there's a new partnership among three entities that's launching to help legacy residents. It's just one of a few initiatives you'll hear about in a few moments. Also this hour, yeah, we know it's nice to have a house full of folks for the holidays, but don't forget about your furry freeloaders or our lovable pets because you'll want to know about some tips and suggestions tips and suggestions for keeping our lovable fur baby safe this holiday season. All that's coming up. But first this, the results of a more than year-long state review of the Fulton County Board of Elections is expected this winter, as we hear from WAB politics reporter Sam Greenglass. A bipartisan panel is probing election administration in Fulton County. Georgia's new election law allows the Republican-dominated state election board to remove county election officials and appoint an interim superintendent based on the findings of a review. State election board chair William Duffy says finalizing the report was pushed back to include the 2022 election. We wanted the ability to see their performance real time uh, under the stress of an election. Fulton County has been plagued by problems like long lines. False voter fraud claims after 2020 also spurred demands for an investigation. The county has already made some changes, including the departure of its longtime elections director. The final report will be on the agenda at the state election board's public meeting in February. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Atlanta remains one of the major staging centers for Mexican cartels moving drugs across the country. That's according to the head of Atlanta's Office for the Drug Enforcement Administration, as we hear from Shemaine Cruz. Robert Murphy is the DEA's special agent in charge in Atlanta. He says cartels have used the area for the past 10 or 15 years. Here it's safer to set up operations. There's a population easier to blend into. There's the money. There's a highway system. So all the things that make this attractive for corporate America and makes it uh, very attractive for the cartels. Murphy says the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco Nueva Generacion cartel are behind the influx of methamphetamine, a stimulant, and fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid. There's no such thing as experimentation. Unfortunately, with the drugs that we're seeing right now, fentanyl in particular, it's just uh, one bad decision away from being a, a, a end of life. Georgia officials say fentanyl-related overdose deaths are up 200 percent from 2019 to 2021, and nearly half of all opioid overdose deaths also involve a stimulant. Shemaine Cruz, WABE News. Georgia clinics that provide abortions are still adjusting to the ban on the procedure after six weeks of pregnancy. Less than three weeks ago, the Georgia Supreme Court stayed a previous judge's constitutional block on the new law, while the state's appeal moves forward, as we hear from Jess Mador. 
The court stay the day before Thanksgiving reinstated the ban. Since then, providers are turning away any patients whose pregnancies are beyond six weeks. Antoinette, who's keeping her last name private, coordinates patients at Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta. She says it's been a tough year for doctors, nurses, and patients. And sometimes patients aren't aware of the law. Most people have not been aware of it being back to what it is. So it's just very disheartening. This clinic and others like it in Georgia refer patients who miss the cutoff to other states where abortion is available after six weeks. The Georgia Supreme Court is expected to take up the state's appeal of the Fulton County judge's block of the ban soon. Jess Mador, WABE News. And finally, I totally, totally love this. The Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and Atlanta's own Jeezy will be teaming up for the Classically Ours concert series. If you don't know what that's about, well, it features, quote, and I'm quoting here, the music of your favorite artists accompanied by world-class symphonic orchestras. Cool. Not the cool part. They didn't put that in there. I wrote that. Each concert is a formal affair honoring the pulse of the art that shapes us by our own cultural creators. Close quote. That is way cool. So Jeezy. And the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra next month coming here. Well, they'll be here. We're back in a moment. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's what we know. Once again, it has been cited Atlanta has the highest rate of income inequality, economic inequality. We've talked about this for so many years. And of course, when we talk about that, one of the metrics that they use to assess that, well, is housing affordability. And we also know an increase in property taxes for Longtime homeowners in these neighborhoods that have been changing, they can cause hardships. Now, here in Atlanta, there's a new partnership between among three entities that's launching to help legacy residents. And there are also some other initiatives. I'm going to find out more because I'm joined now by Rob Lockett with the Rocket Community Fund and Rob Bronner from the Atlanta Beltline Partnership because they're all part of this. Thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. So glad to be here. Let's begin here. Let's let's get our listeners. We know about the Beltline. We're going to get to the Beltline in a moment, but let's talk about this Rocket Community Fund. How long have you all been around and what is the purpose of this? Uh, again, thank you for allowing me to join. Um, the Rocket Community Fund has been around since about 2016, and we are designed uh, and intended to really dismantle systems of oppression that have taken place within the housing market that have historically kept individuals, uh, mostly minority groups, underrepresented groups, 
outside of the opportunity for home ownership. Mm-hmm. So you activate, um, this is our first uh, kind of four year activating outside of the Detroit market where we're headquartered mm-hmm. uh, as the philanthropic partner of rocket companies. Um, so my job is to ensure that wherever possible, we're able to um, really affect the spectrum from a holistic kind of perspective from uh, housing affordability to anti-displacement to providing individuals uh, uh, on ramp to to be able to build wealth through home ownership. And Rob, let's back up a little bit because I want folks to make sure that we're we're talking about the rocket companies. You all are a mortgage company as well, too, an investment. Yeah. So so uh, formerly known as Quicken Loans, maybe you know us of that mm-hmm. name. Um, or rocket uh, rocket companies and, and the rocket family of companies uh, is headquartered uh, in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, any given day, we're the largest uh, mortgage lender in the country. Uh, so obviously being able to have uh, and take advantage of our market position as well as utilize our size and scale to uh, reinforce our commitments to the community. I want to bring I'm going to want to bring in uh, Rob in just a moment. But I want to stick with you for a moment because I just want to get your your personal opinion on this because you work in this space now as Rob Lockett, the same thing. When we talk about lessons learned from 2008 into where we are now, what do you think those lessons have been for not just consumers, because those were the ones who were really, you know, on the the end of those things. But what has been the lesson you hope has been learned out of all that that came out of 2008? That's, a, that's directed to me? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> I think uh, lesson learned um, really for, for the industry has really been uh, to understand how the uh, the availability of very different types of product is important. Um, so with this partnership, we are really focused on uh, on the A&DP side, uh, the Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership side, mm-hmm. uh, focused on affecting the affordability of, of different types of housing at different price points. I see right, right now you see a uh, really a, a gap in terms of inventory mix, right? Mm-hmm. With average home prices, uh, you know, in Atlanta, at city where I'm from, uh, exceeding, um, you know, different levels where there's a gap for individuals who would like to be able to buy a home, but, you know, can't afford it due to uh, different market forces, right? So mm-hmm. I think the focus on affordable mix, uh, I think is one of the main lessons that we've learned out of 2008 Mm -hmm. to be able to have enough uh, different types of inventory for individuals to consume. Uh, Rob, like, let me bring you in the conversation. What do you make of that? And, you know, Rob Bronner, I'm sorry, Rob Bronner from the Atlanta Beltline Partnership. You heard what Rob Lockett had to say (laughs) in terms of, look, lessons learned, affordability mix is key. Mm -hmm. What do you, what's your take on that? Yeah. And, and again, just want to, Thank you, Rose, for for really digging into these issues. And, and of course, we're incredibly grateful to the Rocket Community Fund for their investment. And, and I do want to say just how encouraging it is uh, with with Rob Lockett and the rest of the, the Rocket team as they enter Atlanta, doing so with, with intentionality um, and really having a focus on the residents who live here. Um, and we're, we're certainly humbled to be uh, one of their partners as as they do this work. Um, Rose, I think you asked great, a, a great question. The you know, if I, it's kind of the adage of uh, of when when the best time is to plant a tree, mm-hmm. and I'd say the analogy to buying land, right? So the the best time to to plant a tree was what like 20 years ago, but the yeah. second best time is today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what we learn is, and this has certainly been the case around the Beltline, that um, you know, that it's it's the value of the land that that appreciates. And um, gosh, I I wish we could go back to 2008 when 
when land values were uh, a lot less than they than they are now and uh, secured um, a lot of those properties for affordability, both mm-hmm. residential and commercial. I mean, fortunately, you know, Land About Line Inc., our, our partners, um, I know you know Clyde well, mm-hmm. um, have, have been taking that land acquisition strategy. And I think that's incredibly um, important because that's going to allow long-term permanent affordability, um, you know, not only AB, through ABI, but the Atlanta Land Trust, Atlanta Housing, and, and others. Um, you know, I'll, I'll let Rob Lockett speak to the cut of the mortgage market and all that. Mm-hmm. But I, I think if we're going to have that long-term mix of incomes, securing land for, for long-term affordability is going to be key. Let's get into the core of this because this is a partnership. It's with the Rocket Community Fund. It's with the Atlanta Beltline Partnership and the Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership. And there's a mix of of some initiatives here. The first one I want to talk about is with the the investment for 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 taxpayers, for homeowners with their property taxes. What's this involved here? Yeah, um, and I know this can get a little between Rob Lockett, Rob Bronner. We'll, we'll we'll make it work here. One of the Robs um, yeah. will answer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, so our, our legacy resident retention program, uh, which was a, is a program that we were able to to launch back at the end of of 2020, um, you know, Rocket Community Fund has become the latest uh, supporter of this program. We're up to about four million dollars that we've raised philanthropically, and it is really geared towards keeping existing residents in place. Those mm-hmm. homeowners, um, you know, we all know that you know, as property taxes. Uh, go up. That can put a financial hardship on folks, particularly if you're on a fixed income and seniors. Um, although this program isn't just for seniors. That's actually one of the misconceptions we have. It's okay. it's really for anybody uh, who lives along the south side and west side of the Beltline um, in some of our focus areas that's been in their home um, before, before 2017. Uh, but essentially, we are paying that increase in property taxes. When I say we, I, you know, generous philanthropic donors like like Rocket here are, are paying that increase. And that's important not only to keep people in their homes so they can benefit from all the great things that are happening as a result of the Beltline, but as Rob Lockett said earlier, the focus on wealth building is critical. Uh, I mean, Rose, I think, I think we all know that that home along the Beltline mm-hmm. is one of the, you know, fastest appreciating assets probably in the country, right? Yeah. So to, you know, when we talk about closing the wealth gap, right, to allow somebody, you know, let's let's face it, a lot of the low-income folks don't get to participate in that appreciation of, of value, right? So this program allows them to hold on to that home and, you know, pass it down to generations and help build wealth through it. And in the meantime, stay in their, their home and stay close to the Beltline. I want to be clear here because I already got a couple of me- emails here and folks saying, okay, so if I live, are you saying if I live near or on the Beltline, I can get help with my property taxes? What's the criteria here for, for those residents, for those homeowners? Yeah. So there, there's some priority equity areas. So we, we looked at the areas within the Beltline planning area, uh, which roughly a half mile either side of the Beltline going roughly from Westside Park around to the People's Town neighborhood. And there's a map um, on online, beltline.org uh, slash retention fund. You can go in, type in your address. It'll, it'll tell you if you're in that, in that boundary. But those are the neighborhoods that are most at risk for displacement based on economic and other income indicators. So give me those neighborhoods again, because you mentioned People's Town, and you know, I don't know how many folks are left in People's Town, but you... you I, <laughs> There are it's it's roughly the the southwestern third of the Beltline uh, going from Washington Park at Marietta 
mm-hmm. um, all around to all the way around through, you know, Mosley Park, Westview, West End, okay, Mos- Adair Park, Adair. Ar- around to People's Town and Hill Street. That's that's where the boundaries are, and, and there is an interactive map on our website. And it's it will folks be able to just apply? How will this work? Because you know when. This is getting mm-hmm. out. You know, I have millions and millions of listeners. Uh, this is getting out. So folks have questions. and They want to make sure yep. that you give them all the information they need it because then I'll get an email when they apply and they get they don't qualify and then they yell at me. Yep. So, <laughs> well, we, we don't want them yelling at you. So the the requirements are that they are within the, the boundaries of the program. And again, they can type in their address and, and see that okay. um, they need to be under 100 um, percent of the area median income. Um, although, Rose, I'll, I'll point out more than half of the people who are in this program are under 30 percent area okay. median income all right. and 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 all of them are, are under 80 percent. But the mm-hmm. the income limit is 100 percent of area median income. Um, and and then they have to own their home and, and have uh, been there since before 2017. Before 2017. Will you mm-hmm. all have folks to if they have questions, additional questions, folks that can walk them through this? Because a lot of times, as you both, Rob, you all know, uh, a big challenge can be understanding the process and understanding how to maneuver through an application process like this. Yep. I'm I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, one of the things that we've been able to add, um, really, in you know the, the second half of this year, you know, as we've come out of the pandemic and can do things in person, um, we got a, a grant from AARP to go to hire. Uh, residents, resource coordinators who are, are now literally going door to door, going to community meetings, walking people through the program, building trust, um, and have, have really enabled us to accelerate uh, the number of folks who have been able to apply for the program. Rob Lockett, let me come back to you because you all have had this program, obviously, in other cities, right? You had this in Detroit, obviously, I'm assuming, correct? So not this exact form. Um, in Detroit, what we've noticed, um, take it, going back some years ago, was the complexity and the um, neighborhoods changing uh, due to displacement um, from a property tax perspective, right? We had an environment where, uh, frankly, individuals were overtaxed in some neighborhoods uh, and they should, where they should not have been. So taking those lessons uh, and those investment interventions that kind of came from that, we are uh, extending that out. Uh, across the country in areas where uh, we recognize the scenario uh, similar to what we've experienced mm-hmm. uh, in Detroit. So this pilot group of uh, families really will lay the groundwork for how we will uh, engage uh, along this issue specifically in the future. And hopefully we can uh, be more effective in extending uh, benefits and extending the duration uh, program participants um, for, for the program. And, and I also note that a portion of this grant is dedicated to that awareness piece, right? Mm-hmm. So um, Rob and, and Michael and Jen and his team are really focused on getting um, the the word out in terms of awareness and getting as many as individuals uh, in the program that, that we can hold, really. Um, so being able to carry that forward uh, is important for us as well. When you look at the percentage of homeowners in some neighborhoods, Rob Lockett, you may not know this, but I know Rob Browner does. You look at the percentage of actual homeowners in some neighborhoods here in Atlanta, particularly look at Vine City or English Avenue, which it is, it is, I believe it's below 25% in the Vine City, English Avenue neighborhood. When you, and I know that gap is even, it's wider too. I mean, it's proportionate to the uh, national data here. 
What else is missing from, I guess, this holistic approach when we talk about ensuring home ownership, affordability for households of color? We're talking about black households, Latino, Hispanic. What is missing, you all think, from this whole holistic approach or this formula that everyone says, look, there is no one formula that fits all, one equation. We know that. But I feel like in all these conversations that I have, y'all, that there is something that perhaps doesn't get talked about enough or something that's missing. Rob Lockett, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I think um, in related to affordability um, comes uh, the income conversation has to come into play when you talk about economic development, uh, access to uh, jobs that will provide individuals the ability to be able to afford a mortgage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to really kind of get up and care from both ends. So not only focus on affordability as we're doing with uh, ANDP, but also uh, we have a partnership uh, that we're just kicked off a four city pilot uh, with List Corporation, which mm-hmm. is the local initiative support corporation uh, that really goes into communities and disseminates programming through community partners to help individuals with job skills, training, um, income, and, and economic development opportunity, as, as well as home ownership. So being able to um, affect the issue um, on the front end as well as the back end is important for us. And, and growing up uh, in Atlanta, being from Southwest Atlanta specifically, uh, seeing this kind of play out um, over and over where you have um, areas of the city, obviously, that become uh, ripe for uh, for migration uh, due to affordability, due to housing prices and, mm-hmm. and stock availability, um, you see the permeation of uh, kind of increases in value, uh, similar to what we see in the Beltline. Uh, Rob can definitely speak to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but understanding that those increases um, sometimes come at a cost, right? right? Sometimes come at the detriment of individuals uh, who have been there from a legacy perspective and who have been there from uh, generationally. And we want to make sure that to the degree possible, we are affecting outcomes for, for everybody on the front end as well as the back end. Rob Browning, yeah. you and I both know that depending on whom you ask, and, and I think I haven't heard anyone say that the Beltline should have not been developed, but it's all these other tentacles tied to it. What's your answer mm-hmm. to the question? Yeah, I, I definitely want to underscore what, what Rob Lockett said, and I think it's one of the reasons why maintaining affordability near the Beltline is so important because – the Beltline, in addition to being, you know, this wonderful transportation corridor, I mean, it is an economic engine, right? There are 50,000 full-time jobs that are going to be created by 2030. There are, you know, 48,000 plus construction jobs. And so everything that Rob Lockett is exactly right, that we want to keep people close to where they work and then help give them the skills to, you know, take, you know, they can take the Beltline to get to work. I mean, it's sustainable, lower gas costs, it's healthier. Um, and it's it's why, you know, with our, our partners at Atlanta Beltline Inc. and with a number of great, you know, other workforce development organizations where we're kind of putting in place those pathways for Beltline residents to get the skills um, to get quality jobs that have career progression mm-hmm. um, so that they can that they can afford to live in the communities. On the housing side, you're, I mean, you said this, Rose, there's there's no silver bullet. Right there, there is silver buckshot. It takes a whole bunch of different um, approaches to address this. Obviously, the Legacy Resident Retention Program is is focused on those long term homeowners, mm-hmm. um, but you've got you know a whole you know the production of of new affordable housing, and you know I'm 
I want to, again, give a shout out to our friends at Atlanta Beltline Inc. who have really accelerated that um, over the past few years. And they're, they're more than halfway to that 5,600 unit goal uh, that was, was set for the Beltline. You know, Mayor Dickens, when he was in city council, sure. um, you know, led the effort to do inclusionary zoning. Uh, would love to see that expanded, right? So you ask kind of what other things mm-hmm. need to happen. There's there's some real tough policy things that may require some changes at the state level so that inclusionary zoning can go throughout the city, right? Mm-hmm. That it can apply to for sale, not just rental. Um, you know, even with the Legacy Resident Retention Program, um, you know, our program goes through 2030. It's funded philanthropically. Sure. The long-term solution is not for philanthropy to indefinitely pay people's property taxes, right? The long-term solution is tax policy change so that those property tax increases are manageable right. for people with low income levels. Absolutely. A total of 750000 investment dollars that will help cover property tax increases for about 44 properties in the Legacy Resident Retention Program. Thank you both for taking the time. Rob Lockett with Rocket Community Fund and Rob Bronner from the Atlanta Beltline Partnership. Thank you all for taking the time. We'll check back in with you. A lot of questions still to be to be asked. I appreciate y'all taking the time. Thank you, Riz. Thank you, Scott. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Raise your hand if you have a dog, cats, potbelly pig, ferrets, birds, fish. I don't know about the ferrets, but anyway, listen, it's the holiday season. We know y'all got a lot of folks coming into your house. That's great. But we want to take just a few moments to make sure we give you some tips and suggestions to make sure our furious little folks in the house that they're going to be safe this holiday season. So we turn to Lindsay Hamrick, director of the Shelter Outreach and Engagement for the Humane Society of the United States. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, what 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 do you got running around your house? Let me guess. Uh, two dogs and three cats. Oh, that's such a good guess. I am actually at three dogs. Uh, I used to have cats, but this year I moved in with my partner who's allergic to cats. So uh, cats, I sort of sneak in and then I sneak back out <laughs> before he has a chance to get allergic to them. What do you what do you want folks to most pay attention to this holiday season when it comes to to our pets? And, and we got everything that's that's happening, whether it's holiday, you know, decorations or whatever. But what's that one nugget? I know that we're going to get some other ones, but what's that one nugget you really want to leave people with? The one nugget I would love folks to be cognizant of this holiday season is the toxins that are available to pets. Um, those can come in the form of food because of all the yummy goodies that we have on the table this time of year. It can also come in the form of plants. Mm-hmm. So some of our favorite holiday plants are toxic to our pets. So take a look at the list of food and plants that are toxic to your animals and just make sure that um, they're either not in your home or they're out of, of the way of your dog or cat. Particularly if you have dogs and cats who really love to jump up on counters and you're trying to set the table for a nice meal, and then suddenly your dog is eating half of the meal on, in front of you. And listen, I know that poinsettias, they're beautiful. They really are. Now, I'm not picking on poinsettias, but I do know that uh, they can be very dangerous for pets. 
That's right. Uh, poinsettias is one of the top uh, plants that we keep an eye on. Mistletoe can be toxic to animals. Um, holly plants and ivy plants are the main ones to keep an eye out for. Now, I know often we love to, to dress our pets up. You know, I mean, I, listen, I can't get enough of watching a dog that's dressed up like a reindeer. But what do you want folks to know just about being mindful of some, some of these holiday <laughs> Yeah, but no, I mean, you know, I know, yeah, I know it's it, people say, oh, it's cute. But listen, do you want to dress up like a reindeer? I don't know. But what do you want folks to know? Well, I mean, we've just come out of Halloween season. So if your pet is already used to being in a costume, they seem to actually like it. They don't completely shut down or uh, try to bite you when you put them in a costume. <laughs> you know, probably it's fine. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't leave them unsupervised with something on just in case they start chewing on it or, mm. or get stuck in it. Uh, but I think most folks know their pets enough to know if their cat's going to hate them for the rest of their life if they put a reindeer costume Let me on tell you them. something. As someone who was owned by cats for decades, cats do not want to be in a costume. Let me just tell no. you that right now. No, and, they don't. and also, Lindsay, look, it is great to get a kitten or a puppy or an older pet on Christmas morning. But I've always heard that that really folks need to be mindful of that because especially if you're going to give a pet to a kid, you need to obviously check with the parents but what else about you know because i i've read that you then a few months later there's this percentage or you see pets being returned to shelters you know it's a great question and folks might be surprised to hear that we support giving pets as gifts at the humane society of the united states um and the reason that we do is because there's actually been some research around this issue that tried to look closely at whether or not the pets that were given as gifts are either returned or rehomed a few mm -hmm. months later research is pretty clear that the vast majority of pets that are given as gifts when it's done mindfully um, are doing exceptionally well in those new homes. Um, the things we want folks to keep in mind are, I mean, if you're if you're adopting an animal for your kids, plan to be the one to be responsible for all the chores, mm -hmm. even if your kids promise you otherwise. <laughs> if you're getting a gift for someone that you live with, so um, maybe you're living with your partner and you want to surprise them with a, a new pet, obviously maybe have had that conversation beforehand. Um, and some folks, you know, maybe you're giving a cat to your elderly parent as a, as a way to build companionship. And so make sure that you have a plan in place to help care for that animal. Um, maybe there's expenses that come along that your parent isn't able mm -hmm. to afford. Um, so just be mindful of all of that and a plan if, if your parent or your kid or your partner is not so thrilled to receive that animal. And what about, listen, if you want to, if you do know that it's okay to give a pet, you know, I'm all for, look, don't just give the kitten or the puppy and they don't have any shots yet. <laughs> and then that 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 expense falls on the household. If you're going to give a, you know, make sure that the I, that's what I think. What do you think? What do I know? That's right. And, you know, one of the reasons that we support giving pets as gifts when it's done well is that if you're adopting a pet from a local shelter, 90 percent of the shelters mm -hmm. in this country, they spay neuter before adoption, they vaccinate before adoption you're then providing a pet to someone who has at least the basic foundation of veterinary care available to them already. And Lindsay, actually, I have a listener that has a question and wants to know where can they find a, li a list of foods that are, are toxic or harmful to pets because they didn't know that there were so many? That's a great question. So the ASPCA maintains a poison control center hotline um, and I'll provide that phone number as well in case folks want to keep it handy. But if you go to their website, they have a nice list of all the foods and plants and other substances that might be toxic to pets. 
All right. Now, Lindsay, as when we started this conversation, I asked you about, you know, you, your your pet. So you have three dogs. What is it about pets? I'm just curious that you love. And obviously you work in this space, so you do love pets. That's right. Um, you know, I think like a lot of kids, I was drawn to animals and I sort of just happened upon this career path and and have loved it since day one. Um, you know, I think it's it's obvious to anybody that's had an animal before the bond that we have with them and all of the companionship they offer us. And particularly during this time of year, which for some families is a really wonderful time of year. And for some folks is really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, having a cat or a dog or a ferret at home to help you with those emotions can be really nice. And another question from a listener here, which I actually had this in terms of the weather now here in Atlanta, yeah, we, we're okay. You know, we're not up in, in Michigan or, or up east where it can get really, really cold in the Midwest. Uh, what is the temperature? I mean, obviously, if it's cold outside for you, it's cold for your pet. But, you know, some people still leave the, the pet outside or in the garage or you let him roam and think, well, he's got to take care of the business. But, you know, you don't leave him out there for two hours to take care of the business <laughs> just because you want him out the kitchen. That's right. So, you know, one of the things that comes up during the holiday season is you probably have visitors coming over. You've got a lot going on in the house. So having a room in your home or a section of your home that you sort of designate for your dog or cat, it can be a, something like a bathroom where you just put your cat in there with litter and food and water. And that way she doesn't have to deal with the chaos in the house. I would say that, you know, certainly when the weather gets cold, when the weather's too hot or too cold, um, making sure that your animal, if they're outside, that they have proper shelter, they have proper insulation, they've got access to water that hasn't frozen, they're well fed so that they can build that body heat. Um, and of course, our preference would be that they come inside. But if they need to be outside while you have some visitors over, just make sure that they're comfortable. And if you are traveling, traveling with a pet too, any suggestions, tips there? Yes. So, uh, you know, this isn't the time of year to sort of try your cat in a carrier for the first time for a 10 hour drive. <laughs> uh, if you think that your pet is going to have issues in the car, like vomiting and motion sickness, talk to your veterinarian. They can provide some medication that will help make it a little bit easier on your pet. All right. And, you know, you mentioned um, pet adoptions. I just want to go ahead and give a, a shout out to my favorite little pet. His name is Squash. He's got three little legs. Bless his heart. And he was a rescue, and I occasionally get to pet sit squash. He's just a, a wonderful, wonderful dog. So you can do that when you have your own radio show, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay well, I love his name. I've heard a lot of pet names over the years. I, I highly approve of squash. Yes, yeah, squash is a, a, a muffin, as a friend of mine would call him, because he's very, very sweet. Lindsay Hamrick, Director of Shelter Outreach and Engagement for the Humane Society of the United States. Thank you for what you all do to help so many of our, our little furry beans. We really appreciate it. And thank you for all the holiday tips and suggestions. Thank you so much. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. There is a partnership between the Georgia Institute of Technology, or as we plain folks say, Georgia Tech, and the City of Atlanta Office of the Mayor. Well, they're partnering to launch the Center for Urban Research. And in a nutshell, the focus is to address socioeconomic inequities through research and community partnerships. And we've talked about that word before, partnerships. So let's find out more by welcoming David Edwards. He's director for the Center of for Urban Research. Welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. 
Thank you, Rose. Good to see you again. You know, I just had the conversation with the APD police chief, and he talked about partnerships, and it takes partnerships to get things done, maybe not just in Atlanta, but throughout all of our nation here. How did this partnership come about between Georgia Tech and then the mayor's office, and, and why this Center for Urban Research? Well, in the wake of the Black Lives Matters movement uh, in, in the spring of 2020, we started having some conversations locally about well, what, what is the real structural response to this and, and what can we do really to more fundamentally address the root causes of a lot of this unrest. And uh, so Shirley Franklin and Egbert Perry and several others started having conversations with nonprofits, with academics, about what we could be doing in a more organized way to change public policies that might improve the conditions, particularly in our most distressed neighborhoods. And as we were doing that, we ended up having conversations with some folks at Georgia Tech and the President Cabrera was in the middle of completing really the, the strategic plan for Georgia Tech that was mm-hmm. going to be dedicated towards improving conditions and closing racial equity gaps in the city. And so it just seemed like a natural place to create a center that could be focused on this topic. And let me ask you, are you aware of there is there are there similar type of centers or partnerships in any part of the country? There are centers in academic institutions focused on on urban issues, et cetera. But I think this is the first one that's really had this kind of partnership with a mayor and a city government to work collaboratively to really serve as a platform for collaboration for the for the work that we're doing in the neighborhood. So it's really, I think, Mayor Dickens and his unique commitment to uh, closing racial equity gaps through place-based transformation, I think has really created, I think, a unique opportunity for us. So someone listening says, okay, is this more of a, of a think tank where you're going to bring people together and you come up with ideas and then you try to find those other partners to implement them? How exactly will this work? Well, it's going to really have three three components. One is what you would expect in a university-based uh, a center, which is research, program evaluation, data, all, all the stuff that really drives a lot of the thinking behind this work. But we also that's the first piece. And the second piece is gonna be collaboration. So bringing everyone who's involved in this work in the neighborhoods, so nonprofits, public sector agencies, um, community organizations, bringing them together and giving them a chance to figure out, well, what should we be doing in our neighborhood mm-hmm. and, and specific to our neighborhood, what should be the plan going forward? And then in the last piece is really the implementation uh, side of this. So we're going to provide t- technical assistance to these neighborhoods mm-hmm. with feet on the ground to really make sure the work gets done in a way that it, uh, that advances the, the vision for the neighborhood. Let's give our listeners an example, because one of the current projects is this neighborhood improvement planning and what you're the lead on. And, and I guess at the core of this is that you all will facilitate and come up with some type of project management for neighborhood improvement plans that, that could mean a lot there's a lot under that yeah well there's the we have six of these that are really underway right now and one example would be in thomasville heights as you're aware mm-hmm. we had a, a major catastrophe there with forest cove it was a real mm-hmm. fire drill to deal with a, a, a crumbling uh, multi-family apartment complex and it was a whole process for for getting the residents there out and into safer housing but what that has done is create an opportunity to say, well, we've got assets in this neighborhood. We've got the, the Forest Cove apartments itself. We've got public housing property that has not been redeveloped. It's been sitting vacant for, for over a decade. There are some other public assets. There's now an empty elementary school. Mm-hmm. So the question is, well, what do you do with all these assets? And how do you how do you invest in them in a way that generates a healthy, thriving neighborhood? And the way you do that really is just to get with the neighborhood, get with the leadership, get with the nonprofits that have been working there. And let's think about what kinds of investments should we be making. And so we're in the process of developing a really a small area master plan for Thomasville Heights 
that includes education, housing, transportation, green space, public infrastructure, all the things that neighborhoods depend on. And we will build the business case, what we call business case for investment that will bring public dollars, philanthropic dollars, commercial dollars to that neighborhood and that we hope will generate a healthy, thriving place of, uh, over the next few years. And I want to I want to focus on something that you said, because often and you, you've been around Atlanta and, and this is probably not just unique to Atlanta, but so many neighborhoods feel like when it comes to these new initiatives and projects, often they are let let left out of the planning process. You know, it's it's and I can understand someone seeing folks coming into their community and and you feel like, OK, are you going to make sure that we are involved in this process are you making sure that the community, whether it's community leaders or longtime legacy residents, that if they want to, they can be a part of this, too? Or is it just strictly you all have a set of folks that you want to work with? No, it all comes from the bottoms up, Rose, and it, it really begins with, with the residents. And one of the challenges we face is that in some neighborhoods, you have more of what we call civic infrastructure, so more neighborhood-based organizations than other neighborhoods. And so in some cases, you have to build it over time and kind of help catalyze the development of that. In other neighborhoods, like places like Grove Park, for example, which is another focus area, mm-hmm. you've got you've got a very active neighborhood association, you've got the Grove Park Foundation, you've got a lot of work that's been going on there for the last 10 years, really under the purpose-built communities effort. So as a consequence of that, you have lots of people to work with. In fact, you've already got a lot of plans or, that have already been done. In a place like Grove Park, this is it's more about implementing what the neighborhood has already agreed to, what they've already uh, developed plans around. In places like Thomasville Heights, you're starting more from scratch because right. it really hasn't been work and you've got to you've got to build it up. But at the end of the day, all of this has to be not only I don't like the term community engagement. I think you need community ownership. You need the community to feel as if this is their work and that, that this is their plan and that they have a stake in its outcome. How do you all do that and empower them to do that and work through that when also you have outside factors that you can't control? And that is maybe a developer coming in or a, and not necessarily that it's going to be a bad thing, because I'll get an email about that. But, you know, you know, a, a big tech company coming in or moving adjacent adjacent to that neighborhood. I mean, how do you make sure that you all can work through all of that? Because those are factors that you can't control. You mean a tech company like Microsoft, for example? Is that what you're getting out of there? Of course, with? Microsoft yeah. or Google or anybody. Well, let's take Microsoft as an example, which I think is a really uh, important one, only because it's really going to be the biggest private invest, single private investment I think well, this city has ever has ever mm-hmm. experienced. So Microsoft, is, as most of your listeners will know, has bought 90 acres off of Hollowell Parkway in the middle of Grove Park, right next to the Westside Park. They're planning a, a large corporate yes. campus there could bring mm-hmm. as many as 15,000 residents. So the question is, how do you make sure that that investment rebounds to the benefit of the neighborhood? And to their credit, Microsoft has engaged deeply with the neighborhood, and they're part of this team that we've assembled to to develop the, the investment plan for for Grove Park. And you and and so in those kinds of circumstances, it's quite it's it's fact analogy. It's actually necessary to have the own private owners of property at the table because they have these assets that you want to include. And so, and the good news is, in most of these places that we're working, we have we have developers who want to be part of this process. They see. Whether many of them see that this is as part of their mission, really, is to advance the interests of the neighbors, but the, the, the also they have obviously profit and loss interests as well, and so it's it's going to be beneficial to them if the neighborhood also improves with them. So there's usually an alignment of interests in that regard. Usually it is, but you and I both know that that's not always the case. So, but if you're telling me that you're going to make sure that residents 
and legacy residents and folks who live in that community who can there's something you can't control maybe be able to stay in that community that they're going to be part of the process will the students at georgia tech also be involved in this center as well Absolutely. In fact, part of the reason to do the center is to channel all this great student and academic energy that's done. There's a surprising amount of work, Rose, you may, you, given the folks that you talk to, you probably know as much as I do about this, but there's an enormous amount of academic research that's being done, whether it be in health, mm-hmm. education, housing, locally, that frankly, you know, when I spent eight years at the in the Franklin administration, we didn't take advantage of all that. Mm-hmm. And, and the question is, how do you take advantage? Of, how do you put that to use? And so we now have, I think, eight different projects that the center is already sponsoring that's addressing specific questions to advance this work and this agenda that the mayor has laid out and his part and his partners so we're already channeling that energy i'll be i'm teaching a course at georgia tech this spring and we will have student teams that will actually go out and work in the neighborhoods and, and answer specific questions that we need answered not just academic exercises but actual work that we need to that we will leverage in the work going forward and then finally, and this may be a little bit too early to determine, but you tell me if you're going to talk about the effective, effectiveness of this center and, you know, the work that you all have going on with these projects, do you give yourself a timeline in terms of assessing, hey, this is working, this is not working, or hey, we need to scrap this and start over? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think the effectiveness of the center, since it is a platform for collaboration, will be the participation of those collaborators. And mm-hmm. so what we're really trying to create is a place where all of these folks are doing this work, whether it be city, whether it be uh, APS, whether it be nonprofits, really take full advantage of this opportunity. And we're going to try to leverage this work over the course of this mayor's term and see where we are, frankly. And we'll, we'll see whether this is actually delivering. Are you looking for folks also to be collaborate, collaborators? Do you need folks right now? Do you need to tell folks, hey, we need some input from this sector or folks who have an interest in this. If you are doing work in neighborhoods, really, if that's that's the kind of bar that we've set. If you're doing any kind of work in neighborhoods, really trying to help improve conditions in neighborhoods, we want to be a partner of yours. And this is a place I think you not only can you work, but you can also find other collaborators. So absolutely, please uh, go to our website um, at the Georgia Tech on the Georgia Tech uh, the Center for Urban Research at Georgia Tech, and please. Let us know how you can, uh, if you'd like to participate in one way or the other, we're, we would love to uh, we kind of cast a wide net for, for collaborators. I ask folks this question all the time because Atlanta is still, I think, you know, trying to figure out its identity. You ask people that question, you'll get a whole bunch of different answers. But what is Atlanta's identity as it relates to the service to its people and its residents? And, and what concerns do you have, especially in this area where you're working with socioeconomic issues? Well, you know, Atlanta should be a leader in this space. Um, we should be a national model for how we are eliminated, really eliminating the legacy of our decades of public policies and private actions that have segregated our city, that have concentrated poverty. We are not doing nearly enough um, in that space uh, and to really lead the country in that. And so that's, that's really what this this work is, is, is intending to do, and that's what I think Mayor Dickens is trying to do, is just to show the way, but how do you get this right? How do you do mm-hmm. this in a way that protects the legacy of the city while also creating opportunities for, particularly for families and youth to thrive? David Edwards, Director for the Center for Urban Research, the new Center for Urban Research. It's a partnership with Georgia Tech and the City of Atlanta, the Office of the Mayor. Thank you, Mr. Edwards, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to see you, Rose. Same here.
And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it's free. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.